everybody. Welcome back. I'm Jessica, Executive Director of Wild Cumberland. And I'm Devin, a Wild Cumberland volunteer. We appreciate you being here. Ever since the beginning of this podcast, we have always wanted to bring on additional guests and dig deeper into some topics. And today we are doing just that. In this special episode, we will delve into the history of sea turtle protection efforts on Cumberland Island with special guest, Attorney Hal Wright. If his name sounds familiar to some of you, that's likely because Hal and his work have been featured in some of the books and histories written about Cumberland Island National Seashore. Hal is an attorney who lives in Athens, Georgia, but he made a special trip to Atlanta to record with us today, and we are immensely grateful. Hal, thanks for being here and being willing to spend some time in conversation with us. Now, in full disclosure, before we begin this conversation, I want to ensure our listeners understand that you are currently involved in litigation against the federal and state government related to Cumberland Island, but that is not what we're here to discuss today. But we do hope to get to that in the future, right? Definitely. Awesome. Today, though, we are here to talk about sea turtles. The loggerhead sea turtle, or the Coretta Coretta, is the most common sea turtle on Georgia's coast and is found in our waters year-round. From about May through September, they crawl ashore at night and dig nests along our barrier island beaches to lay their eggs. It makes sense that Cumberland Island's 18-mile undeveloped coastline is the most important loggerhead sea turtle nesting site in the state of Georgia. That's right. We mentioned briefly in our January email newsletter that Cumberland Island's sea turtle protection efforts, which are managed by the state of Georgia, were only implemented after legal action was initiated in the 90s. In this special episode, we're going to dive deep into that history with Hal, who was instrumental in establishing those protections. Hal, I think this is probably a good place to uh, give an overview of the Endangered Species Act, which is sometimes called the ESA, in case you're familiar with that term, just for everybody's understanding as we talk about species. Sure. I'd say in the simplest form, the ESA or the Endangered Species Act protects endangered and threatened uh, species. The act also limits certain types of activities as it's spelled forth actually in statute itself. And those would be things such as killing a particular species, harming it, harassing it, pursuing it, hunting it, capturing it, collecting it, importing and exporting these particularly listed species. And and those terms are specifically set out and defined uh, in the act itself. Uh, The act requires federal agencies to use their authority to recover these protected species and to particularly ensure that they will not destroy, they being the agencies themselves, or adversely modify the critical habitats upon which these species depend. Not only are they required not to modify the critical habitat, but they're also required to protect the critical habitat and also to expand the critical habitat where they are uh, able to do so. And just so we're all on the same page here, what exactly is a, a critical habitat? I can help here if you want. I'm not a lawyer, but I do know that it refers to areas that feature uh, physical or biological uh, things that are essential to the conservation of a species. And they often require special management or protection. So as Hal alluded, these agencies are required to avoid destruction or potentially adverse modification. And 
to his point, they're required to look to expand those protections where they're applicable. So the federal government listed the loggerhead sea turtle in uh, 1978 after the seashore was established by Congress in 1972 and before the wilderness designation occurred in 1982. I know that was a lot of dates that I threw out there, but my general understanding is that by 1989, almost every barrier island in Georgia had sea turtle monitoring and protection efforts in place. Uh, whether they were initiated or managed uh, by owners, residents, or private groups. But it seems like every island was sort of doing its own thing, uh, and there wasn't a cohesive or comprehensive approach. So thankfully, Hal is here to help us better understand what was or what was not happening on Georgia's coast, including Cumberland Island in the 90s. The best place to start would be where I was in the 1990s, I guess specifically in in 1994, and about really sort of how I came to to deal with sea turtles in the first place. So in 1994, I had gone back to law school, and I was taking an environmental, what they call a practicum course, which requires each student to create their own environmental project, if you will, that focused on an environmental problem. And so I was sort of shopping around trying to figure out what a good problem might be. And I went and talked to someone that I had uh, worked with when I had been at UGA about a decade earlier getting a master's degree in environmental policy. And he had suggested that I look at the issue of the Asaba Island hogs and Coretta Coretta. And that situation basically involved the hogs on Ossabaw, which were recognized at that time as being unique in and of themselves. Uh, They drank salt water and they did all these other special things. And they were considered to be unique species, sort of different than feral hogs generally, but, but still feral hogs. And they were having a really adverse impact on loggerhead sea turtles, which obviously were a protected species. So you have two species one which was really not a native species per se, and one that, that obviously was the, the loggerhead. And so anyway, so I took that up as a sort of a, a interesting project to work on. So that was in 1994. That took me uh, to a sea turtle expert that happened to be at UGA by the name of Jim Richardson, who worked at the Institute of Ecology. And he was very, very instrumental in sort of bringing me up to speed as to, as to what the issues were and sea turtle biology and all that. And he was doing it, by the way, was doing a population study and had been doing a population study. I think one of the, one of the longest ones and basically uh, ever done on Coretta Coretta based out of Little Cumberland Island. And he put me in touch with another uh, recognized expert on uh, Coretta Coretta on Big Cumberland Island uh, by the name of Carol Ruckdeshell. Um, so that was I, your, sorry to cut you off, that was fine. your um, entryway into Cumberland Island. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So as a law student, I was trying to learn as much as I could. So I went to Little Cumberland Island just to get a, a feel for what was going on there and with Jim Richardson. And also went to Big Cumberland Island, met with Carol, picked her brain as best as I could. And so I think it's, it's, it's real important to, to understand um, what I learned from Jim Richardson as far as population dynamics of loggerheads and why any of this stuff matters and why a hog eating a, a sea turtle nest is important to address and control. I, I think it's just important to, to understand this. 
Jim taught me several things that are, are dynamics, not only for, for loggerheads, but I think for, for protected species in general. And I, I got to say right here that, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm a non-scientist. I'm, you know, uh, one thing about lawyers, we don't, we, we know a little bit about a lot of things, but not a whole lot about anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, my, my details <clears throat> may not be exactly right, but uh, I, I'm going to try to, I'm try to simplify this as best I can. So there's, there's several principles, I guess, that, that are sort of important, and I'm going to put it in the context of, of the loggerhead. The first thing he sort of emphasized to me was that all species have evolved over a long period of time, and they've evolved to endure a certain level of loss of their offspring. So they have strategies of how to protect their offspring and pass on their genes, basically. It's sort of survival of the fittest type of approach. And obviously with the loggerhead, one of their strategies is to lay a lot of eggs. They anticipate they're gonna lose so many eggs on the beach, they're gonna lose so many hatchlings when they, when they go out to sea. There's gonna be other predators that eat their hatchlings, whether they're seabirds or fish or whatever. So they're gonna lose so many. Under naturally occurring circumstances. Exactly, yeah. So this is thousands of years of evolution. They've just, everything's built into their system. The second was that the species obviously, uh, their long-term survival depends on a certain number of individuals uh, reaching a reproductive age. Right. And so, for sea turtles, yeah, that takes how many years? It's right? roughly 20 years. Yeah. So It's not a quick process. No, and you've got from an egg to when, when that female returns 20 years hence to that same beach, you have a 20-year lag right. in effect. And we know the type of development that can happen on our beaches over 20 years. Exactly, and that was the third point. So if you have an intervening factor, whatever that is, that disrupts this sort of natural scheme and this right. natural mortality, then the population declines. You just, you don't have as many nesting females returning. If that happens enough, you have a declining population and you basically have a, you have a crash. And then, and then the worst. And then you have, then you have extinction. Right. So what's happened recently in the most simple terms is man has become that intervening factor. Right. In a lot of manifestations. Right. But, but mankind has recently become this very, very broad intervening factor that has disrupted all of these reproductive cycles. And so you've got, periodically, you have these animals that are not able to adjust and they basically go extinct. They can't reproduce. So if you, if you look specifically at Coretta Coretta and then on Cumberland, so you have a normal beach that produces, let's say, 100 nests, and these n numbers are not necessarily... Uh, sure. but just for the sake <laughs> of conversation. But let's just right. say, so you have 100 nests, and they maybe contain 60 eggs apiece. So you have 6,000 eggs that are, right. that are produced, and you say you have 85% nest success rate. So you have 85% of those 6,000 eggs that make it into the water. Into the ocean, at least. So let's say 20 years hence, you have whatever number return is, is nesting females so say there's eight i mean right. I'm, I'm, i mean you'd be surprised that there's not that many actually sure. i mean the mortality of hatchlings yeah return i mean the percentage is very very low but it's successful enough to where the, the, the population has been able to sustain yeah, itself continues and stabilizes there mm -hmm. um but let's say you lose 50 percent of your nest 
in a nesting season. 20 years hence, you're going to see half those nesting females are not going to return. exponential impact. Yeah. So if you lose 50% of your nest in, let's say, year after year after year for five years, then 20 years hence, you're going to have a really declining uh, you know, nesting Absolutely. success. Sure. If you have just an increased depredation rate over and over and over and over again, you're going to have a declining uh, nesting population, and then it, it just continues to build. So, so if you have multiple factors intervening causes, right. you have a population crash. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that 50% a moment ago. So sort of helping us move back towards mm -hmm. what was happening on Cumberland. You just took us through the mid-90s and explained some of the, the science we need to understand. But if I remember correctly, at the time you got involved uh, on Big Cumberland and, and we're looking, the depredation rate for nests were some, was something like 50%, which was what, I guess, maybe incited you to get involved, was the understanding of, of what that rate was and how it would potentially impact the species? Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, there's one thing to say, well, you're losing 50% of your nest or 60% of your nest. You know, we still have 50%. Right. You know? So, you know, so who cares? You know, I mean, so what? I mean, well, the ESA cares. We, you know, well, yeah, I mean, well, there's still, there's still a lot, you know? Right. And right. so what does, what does that matter? What does that look like? We don't see it so much now because the shrimping industry has sort of collapsed in Georgia. But at that particular time in the 90s, it was still pretty robust. You had a lot of strandings of, of nesting females that were being either caught up in shrimp nets, right. even though you still had teds. You had a lot of boat strikes of, sure. of turtles. You were losing a lot of uh, nesting uh, females from other causes as well. So there was a lot going on. So, yeah, so you're, you're not only looking at what happens to the eggs, but once those eggs make it off the beach, you're looking at what happens, you know, in the in the actual water and them surviving, like you were talking about with the the shrimp boats and everything. So it's it's a a multi leveled um, trial to get back to nesting, right? Exactly. I mean, like I said, these are not one dimensional problems and issues. Yeah. I mean, they're difficult issues to address. I mean. You could have 100% nesting success on some of these beaches and not necessarily mean that you've solved the you've, problem you know, sure. you know, because sure. there, may be other, there may be other issues out there. I mean, there may be lack of food or they may be ingesting plastics or it may be something else killing the nesting females or something else might be happening. But this was one, obviously, they never make it to the water. Uh, I mean, you know, if they never make it past... Uh, the the egg stage, uh, I mean, you pretty much know what's going to happen right. with that. Well, and I think the important thing is that the ESA is really one of the only mechanisms that we have to help ensure that listed species are actually protected by every means that we have necessary, right? I mean, from a litigative or legal standpoint, the ESA is really one of the only ways for the public to help ensure that protection actually happens. Correct. I mean, if, if you compare it to other laws, it is a very compelling law in a lot of different ways because it is a very action-forcing law. So when you got involved and there was a 50% success rate for, for nesting sea turtles on Cumberland, what did that look like? What did that process look like for you? Well, 
number one, you got to understand, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and they don't teach you in law school. How to fight the good what, fight. What the, what the hell to do. <laughs> so the law school class helped me identify what the problem was. It helped with forcing me to build a team of you know, experts to educate me as to what the biology was surrounding these, these issues. Right. And then uh, I was also blessed that there was a public interest law entity that had been formed in Athens, the Georgia Center for Law and the Public Interest, who I had some uh, relationship with. And so I had approached them I just say, hey, you know, this is sort of a cool thing. Uh, you don't have any interest in And they you know, said, yeah, that's something that we might be interested in. So they helped with formalizing some of, some of the communications and, and making it more, more lawyer-like, if you will. And so we approached the state of Georgia okay. because it looked like this was not just an Osaba Island issue or a Cumberland Island right. issue. It was sort of more broad, it was more of a broad-based issue. And so we went to the state and said, look, this is, this is something that needs to be addressed. And sort of under threat of litigation, uh, they agreed and formed a blue ribbon panel that put together people that, uh, including Jim Richardson and a lot of other experts, Official mm -hmm. Wildlife Service, mm -hmm. people from the DNR. And uh, there was a representative from every barrier island in Georgia that were charged wow. of managing those wow. islands. So we, we had, we had buy-in from all those people. And they, they put together uh, that man, uh, you know, the management plan. Uh, at the time was very, very uh, unique in that it was very comprehensive. It, it covered uh, all aspects of protecting nesting. I mean, you, I mean, you notice it's a plan for nesting loggerhead sea turtles. Uh, and their habitat, which just goes to reinforce that that is such an important component of protecting a species is to protect the reproduction yes. efforts and the habitat, which also protects that species and their, and their efforts to reproduce. So if you don't do that, you, you really, everything else really doesn't matter. So these scientists understood that and uh, they understood that you know you had to protect the habitat from the dire impacts of uh, hogs rooting. I mean, not it's only not just predating directly the eggs, but it was from rooting up yeah, the, sure. the plants and things that stabilize the right. dunes. Same thing with the uh, feral horses that we're dealing with now. You know, anything that, that disrupts or threatens uh, the integrity of that ecosystem, uh, that whole ecosystem, yeah. which which supports uh, loggerhead sea turtles or or sea, you know, uh, seabirds, uh, nest, you know, uh, shorebirds, all of that stuff. Well, it sounds like a big victory then, you know, to have yeah, a, a comprehensive plan for the management of protecting those areas. I mean, there are 14 barrier islands. That's not a small task um, to find a, and, and gather a group of experts who could agree on, on the means to do that. I mean, that, that seems like a victory of sorts. As compared to not having that, it is, yeah, for sure, you know. So having a plan in place is great. And uh, as you know, that's just the beginning. A piece, uh, just a piece of it. <laughs> that's just the well, start. I was going to say, so tell us what happened next. So they created this plan, and the plan begins being implemented along the Georgia coast. 
and that's in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, and I believe, you know, I may not have all this correct, I believe DNR then, or uh, the Coastal Resources Division, which is obviously a division of DNR, uh, they, they created within that division a special uh, entity uh, that sort of was in charge of overseeing the, this plan and, and helping uh, helping, support, coor yeah. helping yeah. coordinate it. And I think that was Mark Dodd, I think, it is, and he's still currently doing that. So it did receive some support from the state. But, you know, plan is just as good as how it's enforced and how people use it and put it in action. So as far as Cumberland Island was concerned, you know, if you look at, uh, I think it was in, you know, 1990, 80, well, 99 or something, you know, became obvious that they really weren't implementing uh, the plan as far as the feral hogs were concerned. The depredation rate had gotten back up to almost like 50% of the nests were being lost to hogs and to raccoons. And so there again, something needed to be done. So, uh, And that's when you took further action. Yeah. We uh, stumbled through figuring out what needed to be done, sent uh, the National Park Service a 60-day notice letter saying, hey, you know, look, y'all have agreed to do X, Y, and Z. Y'all really aren't doing that. You know, we understand you're losing, you know, a lot, a lot of, of nests to uh, depredation. Uh, and what was the agency's response? Well, I mean, basically no response. It's like, well, you know, yeah, but, you know. What can know. you do? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what you want us to do about it. <laughs> so, well, you know, you need to implement the plan. And so <clears throat> they were basically dragging their feet and everything. So they basically forced litigation on the issue. And as a result of that, we ended up going to court. Right. And the judge dismissed the case. The way these things work is most of the time courts will defer, particularly federal courts, will defer to the agency. So the courts will not tell or instruct an agency on how to, to, do, something. to do something. They say, well, you know, this is not our, we don't have the expertise. We don't want to have the expertise. We don't want to second guess an agency. It's not our job to tell an agency how to do their job. Our job is to say what the law is and whether or not they're in a, in, in a, in a, in acting in accordance with the law. So based on the affidavits of the Park Service, their testimony at the hearing and all that, and what they were saying, look, we understand what the law is. We understand we're supposed to uh, protect these nests. We assure the court that we're going to remove uh, we're going to control and remove all these hogs, and we're going to absolutely protect all these nests. And so they they stated all this in affidavits, and they stated it to the court. And basically, what the court did was say, "Look, I've heard what the agency said. You know, I agree with them. I'm going to defer to the agency, and so I'm not going to tell them they've got to do that. They've already told me what they are going to do." And so he basically dismissed the case based on on their representations. And they had indicated that they were going to try to eradicate the population of hogs from Cumberland Island in in their testimony. If I, I mean, if, if that I recall, was, that was yeah, you know, that's sort of my recollection and, and what I was able to glean from my notes. And, and I, I mean, really, I, because I remember reading it and thinking, three years. <laughs> I mean, three years. Mm -hmm. Well, so it's okay. So it's twenty twenty four, right? Wow, yeah. And there are obviously still feral hogs everywhere right <laughs> uh i mean in in like the best conditions and one might argue cumberland island um they do offer some of the best conditions for hogs to I thrive i would agree right? with that a population of wild pigs can probably double in about four to 
I don't know, six at months, least. something yeah. like that. Uh, I know you're not a scientist, Hal, but do you think the uh, that full eradication is achievable for the feral hogs, uh, specifically on an island with wilderness? Or do you think the agency just didn't maybe understand the difficulty and costs involved when they made that sort of commitment to eradicate the hogs from the island? I, you know, it's probably a little bit of both. I think probably at this time, the Park Service's priorities changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think they understood what they needed to do. And this is, we're still looking at the early 2000s about? Yeah, we're looking around 2000, you know, 2001. As best I could recall, I mean, right, right around in that period of time, there was a, a shift in the park to change their view uh, away from natural resources to more of a cultural resource mm-hmm. slant. So I think perhaps it became a juggling of priorities at that particular time. That's not an excuse. I think they got pressured to maybe divert their resources and attention to other, other yeah. places. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know just from the little bit of research I've done that that the Park Service has at least been able to eradicate feral hogs from uh, a particular park. There was Channel Islands National Park in the 90s, I think, they successfully um, managed to eradicate a population on one of the islands within that park. But it seems to me to be, given the what we know about hogs and their reproduction, um, and then the sort of impenetrable wilderness that we have on Cumberland, it would seem to be a very difficult task for complete eradication. But I think it's important to remember, this is all still in the early 2000s. It's been 20 years. And since that time, they've issued a a Fonzie on something that was called the Southeast Coastal Species of Concern Predation Management Plan. There's always a big name for everything. So many words. But it approaches it, I guess, at sort of a regional level, how they are supposed to handle these types of situations when there's a a protected or listed species that is vulnerable or or being potentially adversely affected by something else within, you know, the area. But and I think that's what gives the Park Service authority now to remove coyotes as well on the island. Um, And that was in 19. So that's more recently. And then in 23, the Park Service received what almost a million dollars, seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars, for specifically for feral hog eradication or uh, predation management. I should say I should not sure. use the word eradication, but management <laughs> on the island. Um, well, how do we know how they're they were planning on spending that seven hundred sixty thousand dollars for that plan? I haven't. I have no detail on that at all um i understand that they were they were sort of supposed to serve as a model and a guide for other units within the region if you look like it for instance hawaii yeah i mean they've got a huge problem with not only feral hogs i mean feral animals of all all kinds all kinds sure you know, and they've lost all kind of indigenous birds right. and other animals. I mean, and they have been trying to eradicate all of those uh, feral uh, or exotic species. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, they've spent a bunch, a bunch of money. That's not to excuse the Park Service, but if you don't make it a priority and you don't devote the resources to it, you're not. It's going to get out of control. You're never no. going to do it. Right. Yeah. It's just just not going to happen. We know from the Santa Rosa Island and their eradication of the the hogs, like 
there are obviously success stories out there if you devote those the, the time and the resources to that, right? Um, do you guys know if you mentioned you know the the predation and everything? Do you know if that remains uh, to be the primary cause of the uh, sea turtle nest loss? There's there's limited data out there about that specific thing, so um, that would be interesting to to do a little research well, on. Well, I don't know if there's limited data or you're unable to get the data that, uh, so, I mean, which is, a, you know, those are two different things. <laughs> yeah, they um, are. And so I, um, you know, you know, and then there's, there again, there may be, uh, there may be other causes of, I mean, it may not be sure. nest predation. It may be, there may be another, uh, there may be category another, that yeah. or, or issue at hand. Sure. Like for instance, maybe two years ago they had this is this is a climate change issue. They had a late, really late storm, and they lost every remaining nest on the beach was drowned. And so when you've got these when you got got these late storms, uh, these changes with with the dune systems mm-hmm. being uh, unable to migrate like they they normally do. You, these late storm events will flood and, and they'll they'll just drown all the the hatchlings that haven't hatched yet. So so you get so you got that coming too. Is that a natural event right. or is that a man, man. caused? Yeah. You know, and, and and you know you could argue that both ways. Do you know if the MPS um, if they have any obligations or, or policies or mandates of its own that really compel that agency to uh, protect endangered or threatened species, including the turtles? Uh, and this is obviously outside of the Endangered Species Act. Or is that the only thing that's holding them to that? Without getting too deep into the legal weeds here, um, the Park Service is definitely guided by uh, a lot of different policies and rules that require them to, to refrain from taking any action that would impair a park resource. I guess the key word in your question is whether they're compelled. Uh, I, most of those laws don't compel action per se, and that's always the legal fight is whether or not the agency's required to take those actions or it's left to their discretion of whether they need to take the actions or not. So to sort of circle back around to Jessica's question initially of why the Endangered Species Act is such an important law, one of the reasons is the Endangered Species Act doesn't really allow a whole hell of a lot of discretion. I mean, it's pretty much you shall not basically uh, harm uh, a protected species. You're to protect it period, end of story. So to your question, there are arguably laws that require the Park Service to act in such a way as to not impair all of these resources and all the species. I mean, so, you know, a species doesn't have to be listed as being special. It's it's every species, you know, uh, within the park. So they're not supposed to impair any of them. They're supposed to act in a way that maintains and protects all of these resources. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yes, the agency should, right? That's it's right. basically yeah. the, the answer, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> uh, well, something else to consider, and I know we're getting close to wrapping up, uh, but I want to say loggerhead sea turtles were listed as endangered in 1978, but the federal government did not designate any critical habitat for them 
which as Hal's told us is required yeah. under law by the ESA until 2014. Mm. And that only happened after a lawsuit was filed by conservation groups. So it's 36 years, Devin, that it took them to designate wow. critical habitat for the loggerhead sea turtle. And, um, and you were a huge stepping stone for that, Hal. I mean, and you and your work with, you know, uh, with well, Jim think, Richardson being, you know, putting you on the Cumberland Island and then just a feral hog issue in general. Um, I, I believe you were a huge stepping stone for that. Well, I think our federal agencies have been entrusted to serve as guardians, right? We use that language sometimes right. about <clears throat> guardians for our public lands and, and they're supposed to keep them protected for future generations. The ecosystems, the species within them, the, the ecosystems that these species are relying on and the other species are relying on, they're also entrusted to their care. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have a responsibility, but it's clear from just this conversation with Hal and, and from so much of the history that we can read that citizen engagement and legal action by people who are paying attention are both necessary and effective methods to ensure that our agencies and systems do protect these animals like they're supposed to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've learned a lot. And I think I want to go back because we talked about the sea turtle data and remind everybody that um, you can view the sea turtle data online, some of it anyway, at seaturtle.org. But everybody should be familiar with how to help protect these animals when they're visiting Cumberland Island. So um, to volunteer with sea turtle protection efforts, we get this question a lot. Actually, my inbox is often full of, of questions. People would like to get involved with the sea turtle protection efforts on Cumberland. You actually have to apply for an internship through the Student Conservation Association. So we unfortunately can't help you with that. But, <laughs> uh, I can head off some of the emails we'll get after this podcast because somebody will always ask, how can I work and volunteer with the sea turtles on Cumberland? And they can also uh, continue to learn about sea turtle protection efforts um, and specifically the Cumberland Islands sea turtle data online at seaturtle.org um, if you're at all interested in that. Everyone, though, should be familiar with how to protect these animals, especially when visiting Cumberland Island itself. Uh, the immediate thing that pops into my head is is use the red light function at oh, night sure. when you're looking, right? Sure. Um, so, as you said, to volunteer with the sea turtle protection efforts on Cumberland Island National Seashore, um, you are required to apply for that internship uh, through the Student Conservation Association. But um, that pretty much brings us to the end of, of this special episode with Mr. Hal Wright. Uh, we are grateful for the work that you and um, obviously the others who have come before us have put in to uh, help protect Cumberland Island and its wilderness and the many species who depend on it. Um, so we, we really appreciate uh, you coming down here for this and uh, just the work that you've done, not only for Cumberland Island, but just for uh, endangered species and, and, and nature in general. So thank you, Hal. Well, thank you, and I, I appreciate the work that uh, that both of you do, and and Wild Carbon as well. So, um, critters need all the help they can get. So, thank you very much. Got it. We know how valuable your time is, so thanks for choosing to spend some of it with us today. Stay wild. As always, we can't do this work without your help. If you value the information and services our organization provides, including this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work now at wildcumberland.org. The Wild Cumberland Podcast is produced by Vertical River, and this episode was edited by Greg Cusan.